Hey everyone, welcome back to Upstate Anecdotes, the Shy Institute for Sustainable Communities podcast. My name is Caroline Singleton. Picture a river. To keep it local, this river is full of all of Greenville's problems. I know, maybe not the place everyone wants to visit, but hold on. Now, break that river into three chunks, upstream, midstream, and downstream, and picture each section as a different facet of social justice. Downstream are the micro-level, everyday practicalities. Remember how LiveWell has over 250 partners? This is where a lot of those partners are, like food security, getting food to people. It's doing the work on the ground to make daily life easier and more just. Midstream is a slightly deeper level of impact, where neighborhoods, local institutions, and organizations exist to create more lasting change. Things like Dr. Cobb's suggestion to move the bus stop would go here. Whereas downstream is getting food to people, this would be addressing food availability as a whole. Now, finally, the top of the river, the very most upstream section, is the macro level. This includes things like social structure, policies and government, large institutions, etc. When it comes to food, this would be the big things like creating jobs and raising wages. This metaphor comes in handy when thinking about nonprofit work and creating sustainable communities, because each section of the river is incredibly important. If you're solely working downstream, that's great because you're helping to meet the urgent needs of people experiencing hardships today, but it doesn't get to the root of the problem. Now, if you're in the midstream, again, important work is being done, and you're getting to the more root cause, but not quite there yet. Upstream is where the real root cause is, because it's things like systemic racism and the education system and public policy. On today's episode, I'm talking with Melissa Fair about how to tackle the upstream issues, as well as why it matters. So my name is Melissa Fair, and my background is in public health research and evaluation. Melissa is the Director of Community Action for Furman's Institute for the Advancement of Community Health. She received her Bachelor's of Science in Health and Exercise Science from Furman in 2010. She also has her Master's in Public Health from the University of South Carolina's Arnold School of Public Health. And she actually just recently completed her doctorate from the Arnold School of Public Health as well. So she has her PhD in health promotion, education, and behavior. Initially thought in my career that what the work I was going to do was more around individual health education and or, you know, health intervention. And so I started working at Prisma Health, Greenville Health System back then, as their exercise physiologist for cardiac rehab. So working with patients after they'd had a major cardiac event like a heart attack or some sort of stroke event to develop a physical activity and nutrition rehabilitation plan. So they literally came and we'd hook them up on monitors and, you know, watch their exercise and make sure that, you know, their heart was responding appropriately. And I started to notice that like the things that were going through my mind were the bigger systemic questions of why were black men our youngest patient population? Why were our low-income patients more likely to be, you know, repeat patients because they would have multiple cardiac events? And started to see that those weren't problems that I could address 
doing the individual level patient care while it was incredibly important and you know saved lives I was starting to think more upstream about like what are the systemic issues that create these health inequities in our communities and how do you what do you do about it Melissa was heading in an upstream direction so she reached out to Dr. Powers a Furman professor for guidance that led her to an internship with Livewell Greenville If you listen to episode 29, you'll know what Livewell Greenville is. But to sum it up, Livewell advocates for healthy eating and active lifestyles. But they do it by a great force of community collaboration and addressing systemic issues. I've been with Livewell for a long time. So this was probably 2012, so literally a decade later. And so I interned with them doing things like supporting their communications, social media, their website. I helped implement a program called Park Hop, which actually still exists today. It's a family-based physical activity scavenger hunt in parks with the goal of trying to increase parks usage and physical activity within park visits. And the other thing that piqued my interest is Livewell had always done evaluation with Dr. Powers. And so looking at rates of youth obesity across the county and what were the disparities by race and ethnicity, gender or sex and um, income. And I was like, that's really interesting. Like, I want to learn more about that. And over the course of my master's, started working more and more in their research and evaluation projects and thought it would be really cool to go back and get my PhD. And so I started to have those conversations and an opportunity came available where it just worked out where LiveWell needed um, a doctoral student and there was someone who was a research partner with LiveWell at USC who was willing to take on a student and so I got to pursue my doctoral degree while still working as LiveWell's research and evaluation coordinator. So long story short, um, then this job became available while I was still a doctoral student here at Um, the Institute and I moved over into that but I'm still connected to LiveWell because to develop a sustainable long-term research and evaluation partnership Mm -hmm. my role serves as LiveWell's principal investigator kind of overseeing all of their research and evaluation activities so we partner not just with me but um, other professors across Furman's campus actually so we've worked with Dr. Stratton in the business and economics department with Dr. Slining and Dr. Chris um, in health sciences, Dr. Kolb in sociology, and so so lots of other people across campus um, and even at other universities like Clemson and USC, and so I kind of try and fit all of the puzzle pieces mm-hmm. together across all of those research and evaluation experts that kind of support LiveWell's cool. activities. What Melissa does on a day-to-day basis is research and evaluation, specifically what she likes to call applied community research and evaluation. The very first goal always is to benefit the community and demonstrate their program's effectiveness. She says that it flips the traditional model of university structures because she's not a faculty person, and she doesn't have pressure to write grants and publish papers. She's focused on community first and foremost. 
So I say I do three main things. The first is I research relevant community health issues that are affecting our community and producing systemic inequities. So things like the Greenville County Youth Obesity and the Healthy Neighborhood Study Mm -hmm. that we did with the Shy Institute. So looking at youth obesity rates in Greenville County, food insecurity risk in Greenville County, and access to parks and walkable neighborhoods and where there might be disparities by income and race ethnicity is a good example of that. The second is I work with community partners to develop evidence-based programs that are driven by theory and then evaluate their effectiveness. And so I do that with LiveWell, but I also do it with nonprofit partners like the Phoenix Center, which is our local drug and alcohol rehabilitation services organization, local health systems like Prisma and Bon Secours St. Francis. And then the last thing I do is try and build relationships. And relationships are really the key to all of this work in the community. And so how do I develop deep and meaningful working relationships with both our local partners Mm -hmm. and state level partners to facilitate, you know, um, collaboration and shared knowledge and make sure we're not duplicating efforts that might be happening ranging from the local to state to regional Mm -hmm. levels. Much of her work is that first piece she mentioned, looking at the correlation between health, obesity, and socioeconomic status. And from what I've already learned this summer, I understand the connections. But I was curious what she had to say as someone who researches the actual data and has seen the numbers. So low-income families and low-income communities have higher rates of obesity. And, you know, that's not inherent to being low-income. That's the opportunities and the structures that influence people's ability to access and prepare healthy fruits and vegetables, Um, their ability to live in neighborhoods that have access to complete streets that are walkable and safe, having parks access, um, having access to a primary care provider and other things that might support a healthy lifestyle. And so for me, it's really this idea of structural determinants, which could be things like systemic racism, where, you know, black and Hispanic families are more likely to live in low-income neighborhoods because of structural barriers to education, economic mobility, um, and then other things like social determinants of health that come with, you know, living in poverty, where you've got reduced access to, food security, transportation, educational opportunity. And so really the driving force between many of the like health inequities that exist at the end of the day is poverty and education. Mm-hmm. And but then the, you know, even further upstream barrier is why is there such a divide in poverty and education by race and ethnicity? Mm-hmm. And the connection between obesity, health, and socioeconomic status create stereotypes. They create stereotypes of low-income families. But like Melissa said, obesity is absolutely not inherent to being low-income. This made me wonder, how does this affect the way that others see those in poverty? So in your opinion, how does the current discussion around all of that, around 
obesity, health, and socioeconomic status frame how food security is viewed by the wider public? So I think people typically think of food security and food insecurity is this idea of like starving or not starving, Mm -hmm. but there's gradients in between. So food insecurity is not just having food. It's also about having the right food. And when you're living in poverty and, and or maybe your housing is not stable, that may even influence your ability to prepare foods even if you have access to them. So low-income families are more likely to be heavily reliant upon processed and prepared foods that have less nutritional value and tend to be more calorically dense. So there's actually a relationship that's, you know, a positive correlation where, you know, at that like mid to higher level of food insecurity. So like we're not actually starving Mm -hmm. because starvation is associated with like malnutrition and low weight. But these other, you know, kind of the gradient of food insecurity can be associated with increased risk of obesity Mm -hmm. because they're consuming calories, but they're not consuming the calories that their body needs. And so it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition that I think the average person doesn't see a child that may be overweight and say they're at risk for food insecurity. Their family Mm -hmm. might not always know where the next meal comes from or what that meal will be, but there is a relationship between the two. Right. In your work, how have you seen these specific issues manifesting in Greenville? I think that COVID-19 really highlighted how how many people in our community were suffering from food insecurity because there were more and more people um, suffering from food insecurity. So, you know, the number of people showing up to food pantries or, you know, sharing with their physicians that, like, we don't always have access to the food that we need um, increased. And so that really was kind of the driving force behind you know, Livewell had been working in the space of food insecurity, but it wasn't one of the primary drivers of all of our work. And I would say in COVID-19, that really changed where we saw the opportunity to support all of the food security partners in this idea of how do we, you know, they're worried about the day-to-day of getting food to people. And so they didn't have time to think about the systemic structures and how do we change systems to be um, more effective? How can we collaborate and pool and share resources and solve the problems and challenges associated Mm -hmm. with getting food to people during COVID-19 and pulling them all together and saying, we'll help facilitate these conversations and that action um, was really productive and meaningful and actually helped Livewell write a grant for the CARES money that brought over a million dollars into Greenville County to address food insecurity, buying things like additional refrigerated trucks mm-hmm. um, or, you know, paying for actual food for community members. That's awesome. Why do you believe your specific focus on data-driven evaluation is particularly important? Okay, that's a good question. So I think a lot of times we make assumptions um, about 
well, of course that works because it's logical or it makes sense to us. Um, but that may not always be the case. And I think for me, the classic example of that is the incredible edible egg. Have you heard those commercials ever? They're as fresh as the breeze. Eggs come to you fresh every day. I don't think so. Like back in the day, that used to be um, a commercial that was on TV. And when you think about the egg, it's one of those things that over time has been good and then bad and then good and then bad again. Eggs. You, you need data and actual evidence like to formulate those assumptions and so we need to be designing community programs with those same you know like evidence behind them because if we don't set up our programs where the actual activities and supports that we're providing to the communities can directly touch the outcomes of interest that we want mm -hmm. then inherently the program won't work and so helping communities walk through that process of saying, what are the outcomes that you want to happen in the community? Is your goal to um, reduce hunger? Is your goal to increase um, access and consumption of fresh fruits and vegetables, which will then, you know, hopefully reduce obesity over time, which then in turn reduces chronic disease, morbidity and mortality but you have to design program activities that actually do those things. And so that may mean looking at how food pantries provide access to both shelf-stable options and fresh fruits and vegetables, rather than just saying, we're gonna provide people with food in boxes. Mm -hmm. um, you have to design the program have the outcomes you want and then I think the other thing is the financial climate is really competitive always mm -hmm. for nonprofit work and grant work and there has been an increase in recent years that people have to have evidence or outcomes to be successful in obtaining money and so research and evaluation is one of those ways that they can do that. So, you know, how many people have you provided food to? How many of those people report increased consumption of fruits and vegetables? How many of those people report, um, you know, increased capacity to prepare, you know, raw foods like vegetables that they might not have been able to do before? And that sets them up for, you know, grants from the USDA or local foundations. Mm -hmm. So how has that work specifically created lasting positive change in Greenville or how can it? So a lot of the work I focus on is um, with Live Well and Live Well's focus as well is this idea of policy systems and environment change. And it's really driven by something that's actually rooted in ecological sciences, which is the social ecological model. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that the individual lives within their social network, that lives within um, a neighborhood or community, that lives within a broader community that's made up of organizations to form, you know, whether that's Greenville County or the city of Greenville. And then the last layer is this, you know, policy systems um, and environment structures like 
local laws, zoning ordinances, you know, government practices where they might make decisions about funding um, and infrastructure in certain communities. Melissa says that she and Livewell tried to live in that space of how do we address those systemic upstream drivers of health. She made sure to emphasize that that doesn't mean that downstream efforts of individual health education aren't important. While Livewell and Melissa are trying to swim upstream, they continue to support their downstream partners to address the day-to-day hunger relief and education, because that means they're mutually reinforcing each other, which is how you truly create positive, sustainable, long-term change. I think the well, I've said it before, but the collaboration part, I think, is so key, especially for a small city like Greenville. Mm-hmm. So what is the most positive impact that either your work or something you've seen has made on food security in Greenville? There's so many of them that I'm um, I'm going to talk about the evolution of the work that's happened most recently. And I think it really started with that CARES grant. Mm-hmm. Um that we pulled together partners including food share summer feeding programs and other organizations to collectively apply for that money and bring in you know that investment of over a million dollars and simultaneously during covid the other thing that was happening is this idea of community power building Mm -hmm. that we as organizational stakeholders are not people who necessarily, some may, but most of us probably don't have lived experience with food security, food insecurity, or hunger. Um, And realizing that that voice was incredibly important to have at the table. And so, and not just as a, a nice gesture but like meaningful input that we actually listen to mm-hmm. and so we've live well has continued to work in this space of what we call community power building or power sharing where you know my expertise as a researcher who's gone to school for a long time is no more important than the voice of a community resident who's actually navigating the system of hunger relief Um, that I need their knowledge and expertise to be able to develop, you know, evidence-informed or data-driven solutions that will actually work. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it doesn't matter if in theory it's nice, if it can't actually be applied to community use. And that work has slowly pushed us, you know, more and more at Livewell away from this idea of, you know, just healthy eating and active living mm-hmm. to understanding that if you don't have the resources to meet your daily needs, if you're worried about um, whether you can pay your rent or if your water is going to be shut off or if you have adequate child care or, you know, if your child's behavioral or mental health is struggling, then you're not thinking, did I get a walk-in today? How many servings of fruits and vegetables am I consuming? And so acknowledging that we need to be working in this space of um, structural racism and understanding how not only do policies and practices create sustainable change, but how do our historical policies and practices Um, influence structural racism and 
limit opportunity by race and ethnicity Mm -hmm. um, and other demographic factors. And so that has been the most rewarding to me is to see this evolution of work, Mm -hmm. you know, go from where we were focused on how do we get salt and pepper off, not pepper, salt off the table um, at church meals to saying, how can we talk to local government officials about the impacts of structural racism and health inequities? Yeah, that's a huge evolution. Yes. Like that's a huge recognition of the deeper problems that actually are causing a lot of the inequities. And we still have a long way to go in that work. Like we're at the very beginning of that journey and it took us over a decade to get there. So I envision it's gonna take us a decade or more you know, mm-hmm. to continue to advance work in that space. Yeah. I really liked what Melissa said about providing space for the people who have lived experience with food insecurity to speak on the issue, not just as a nice gesture, but to give meaningful input that LiveWell actually listens to. Because of these shifting ideals, LiveWell is actively changing and growing in ways meant to support their community members who need help. And that means sustainable change. When you think of sustainability, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? I mean, today, because we're talking about food insecurity, um, what popped into mind first was the idea of food waste. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's actually a subject that causes a little bit of tension within the food security community, um, because obviously, food waste in America is incredible. Um, like the amount of food that gets thrown away, even just how our food is packaged and processed. It's just the scale at which we waste food is pretty mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, but then, you so we've got organizations who their primary goal is to reduce food waste. And so that's all food waste. That's, you know, the pastries and the bagels and the cakes and the cookies from Atlanta Bread Company that don't get used at the end of the day, along with the produce that, you know, is just out of date at Whole Foods. And, you know, we don't have to throw it away yet, but, you know, they're able to donate it to Harvest Hope and we need to get it out into the hands of the people but it creates this inherent kind of moral or ethical dilemma of do people who are reliant upon hunger relief deserve food that's of lesser quality? Um, And I think that there's some people that might argue yes, but I think from a moral imperative, I would obviously say no. And so how do we balance acknowledging that you know food waste is a problem Mm -hmm. and we need to address it and we should be good stewards of our resources but at the same time someone at a homeless shelter's dinner shouldn't be half of an apple pie if they are you know diabetic and already having difficulty controlling their blood sugar and insulin levels because they don't have access to, you know, regular medication and refrigeration. Mm -hmm. And so it creates this kind of like interesting tug um, or tension that you have to balance that I think both arguments are valid, Mm -hmm. um, that we should be more sustainable in food waste. But I also think the argument of um, just because you may live in poverty does not mean that you should have foods that are less right. nutritionally 
of less nutritional yeah. value. Yeah, and I think that's the question. Does sustainability improve and or inhibit the food security space? Because I think it does both. Mm-hmm. In a way, obviously, we want all of these issues to go away and we want the world to not be ending with all of the societal ecological problems that we have, but it's hard, like you said. And I haven't thought about because I haven't spoken with anyone whose work is specifically about the health aspect of it, and I think it's really interesting when you think about diabetes and things like that that you just mentioned. So mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. The reality of sustainable food is not always a reoption or an option for people who are experiencing food insecurity. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of times more expensive, time consuming, or it's just not what people want sometimes because of just the way that their lives are set up. So do you have an opinion on what the city of Greenville can be doing to improve the sustainability of its food security efforts for the long term? It's a good question. Um, Yeah, because we have to honor the reality that sustainable food sometimes costs more money. Mm -hmm. I think it's trying to come up with mixed options of the, you know, like I think food share is a really good model where not all of their produce is sourced locally, but some of it is, and they try. Um, So that mixed, you know, where their nationally sourced produce may be more affordable and a more sustainable long-term option to kind of shore up the, like, base of their food boxes. But then they also incorporate those rotating options from regional food producers or local food producers. FoodShare, that Melissa mentioned, is a program from the University of South Carolina's School of Medicine. Its mission is to increase access, knowledge of, and consumption of vegetables and fruit through community-led projects. Next time, we'll actually be talking with Mill Village Farms. They're a partner of FoodShare and do a lot of interesting work in Greenville County but we'll save that for next week. And so I think anytime you can apply that lens of, you know, it's not just, we don't have to put all of our eggs in one basket. And having that sustainable base of the consistent staples allows them to rotate through local options, which I actually think is a good thing because it's um, exposing people to more um, variety. While still putting things in their hands that are like familiar and comfortable. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one way. And then I think the other is listening to our community residents about what they need mm-hmm. um, for things to happen, like community gardens or um, our local farmers, about the supports and infrastructure they need to keep local um, farms going. Um, And a perfect example of that is Dr. Kolb from the um, sociology department recently partnered with the ICH and Livewell Greenville to um, host a listening session that you actually were able to attend. Yes, I did. And so hearing from community members and a, a tangible example was we had some residents who were involved in the Nicoltown Community Garden um, at that event, and but they're heavily reliant upon elderly residents to serve as their volunteers. Are there supports that, you know, the Parks and Recreation or other city departments that could provide to those community members um, things like 
shoveling mulch or moving heavy objects are really their major barriers. They've got the knowledge and expertise to like grow and process the vegetables. It's just the manual labor when you're, you know, retired in your mm-hmm. 60s, 70s, and 80s that limits um, sustainability and output in the garden. Right. So I think listening to the people is one of the best ways. I think that's always important. It's mm-hmm. always about asking, you know, who has a seat at the table mm-hmm. when you're making decisions and things like that. So we've heard from a lot of people who have worked very closely to the problems they're trying to help solve. And as someone who wants to pursue nonprofit work, I recognize that it's a lot. Similar to climate anxiety, the work can be very heavy. So I was curious about what keeps you going. And I asked Melissa. So researchers by nature were trained to think about problems. And so there are moments where I tend to feel like I'll realize this feels so negative because we're identifying problems. And that's why I love working with our community partners where they're inherently focused on community solutions. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's the most rewarding aspect of my job is that if I'm identifying the issues like inequities, disparities, systemic problems, it's not me who's going to solve them. It's my community partners. And so having that push and pull of being able to interact with them, um, I think is really meaningful. And then the other thing is I do, it is rewarding for me to work with students and young people because they're young in their careers and there's often a lot of like optimism energy and enthusiasm and so i think my community partners and working with you know student interns and postback fellows Mm -hmm. really can provide some of that i guess relief from the heaviness and i'm a collaborator by nature and so my ideas flow best when i'm in the room with people um and when we're really focused on positive changes, um, that's fun for me. And so it balances out the heavy stuff. Yeah, 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 that's awesome. So if you were in my shoes and you had to ask yourself something that I didn't ask, what would you, what would you say? Yeah, I think, so I don't come from a terribly diverse background. um, And I think one of the things, so, I think how do you approach this work with humility mm-hmm. um, and how do you approach this work in a way that you know isn't a stamp on diversity and equity and inclusion but really embracing those as like the core values of how we do our work right. um, and so that takes some practice over time because I think researchers inherently were um, we're the experts you know you know so oftentimes we come in thinking we have to remind ourselves we don't know everything um just because i have a doctoral degree does not mean i'm the expert in everything in the world it means i'm an expert in a really narrow space of something that i've studied for a long time Mm -hmm. and so i think learning that practice of you know humility and that everyone's input and voice is important is not just something you learn overnight it's a practice that you have to adopt over time yeah that's fantastic advice 
I really appreciate that. And of course, I asked Melissa if she would add or change anything about my definition. And while she didn't have anything to add, she did have a very insightful comment about definitions. I think the only thing about definitions that I guess I've learned through the work with Livewell is how much local context matters mm-hmm. and that, you know, we can't, there's no one solution right. um, to food insecurity or access to healthy fruits and vegetables. And so just honoring that, you know, local context and the intersection of mm-hmm. all of those things that you mentioned is yeah. is really important. But I think it's a good definition. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I was speaking with Dr. Cobb yesterday and in that conversation I realized kind of that the the idea of a definition does kind of put you in a box mm-hmm. and to not trap yourself inside that box. But that's how we as humans inherently yeah. process and sort the world is, you know, we have to ascribe language yeah. to, or, to ideas to be able to interpret them. But I think as long as you honor mm-hmm. that that box is not a one-size-fits-all, that's right. really, you know, the uphill battle. I think so, too. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time to help me with this. No, this was fun. This is the first podcast I've ever awesome. done. So if there's anywhere that the listeners can, I don't know if you have a website or if there's anywhere they can find you online. Do you have any plugs? So one thing that I would love for people to check out is we have something called a healthy neighborhoods map that is the product of that research study that we did with the Shy Institute where those are available to the Greenville County community and you can see all of those overlays and we've worked with partners like LiveWell to be able to like actually use them in a tangible and productive way and a good example is that like when they were doing a school backpack program they looked at um, schools that they did an inventory of where schools were and who already had them Mm -hmm. and then use that map to say can we identify any communities that have gaps where maybe there's not as many food resources and we should prioritize trying to get a healthy backpack program into those schools if they don't already have one and so I think it's a really cool resource that we're going to try and grow and evolve over time with community impact and so you can Google the um, Furman Healthy Neighborhoods Project and it should pop up. Perfect. Yes. Everyone go Google that. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. Thank you. I'll be sure to have the Furman Healthy Neighborhoods Project linked below. If you're interested, it's a great resource and I definitely recommend checking it out. So far, what I've really enjoyed about my interviews is that each one brings something completely new and different. While Melissa's comments share a lot of similar tones to Susan, it's not just because they work together. It's because they're right. The more people I talk to, the more I hear over and over again how crucial lifting up community voices and collaboration is, and how when you swim upstream and you keep digging deeper, you realize that sustainable food justice can't be achieved without recognizing, acknowledging, and honoring the roots of the issue. What Melissa brought to my journey was a valuable, evidence-driven approach to social justice. Like she said, data and evidence help create sustainable change because you're not relying on assumptions. Actual evidence to support those assumptions gives you the opportunity to design programs with the evidence behind it in order to get the outcomes you want. And she also said that we don't have to put all of our eggs in one basket. 
mixed solutions that incorporate different options might actually be the key to starting the process of creating a basis for lasting sustainable change. Don't forget to follow the Shy Institute on Instagram, at Sustainable Thank you so much for listening. My name is Caroline Singleton. Until next time.